Welcome back, Goblins. You're listening to the Esoteric Book Club. Tonight, I have special guest Morgan Daimler with me. Morgan is a prolific author. There's no other way to put this. I don't know any other author who can simultaneously write seven books at once, but somehow they do it. Hello, Morgan. Hello. It's good to be here. Excited to be talking with you today. And it's wonderful to have you. I'll be completely honest. I'm geeking out a little bit. I have quite a few of your books. In fact, you can see some over my shoulder back there. Chances are at least one of those is yours. Awesome. Like I said, you're writing several books at once, but your next released title is A Pagan Portals Book on Lou, the Irish Deity, correct? Yes, um, that comes out May 1st. Uh, I've written quite a few for Moon Books Pagan Portals series, and the idea with that series is they're supposed to be kind of good, straightforward introductions to different topics. And I've done several now on specific Irish deities and a couple Norse. Um, I've also done a Pagan Portals on Odin and a Pagan Portals on Thor. But Pagan Portals Lou comes out May 1st. That's my next one. I actually have your title on Odin, and I was surprised how little historic information there is on him, despite the sagas and Snorri Sturluson's input. What I found most impressive about your book, though, is that you broke down each name that he went by in his travels and what his aspects were when he had that name. I was dedicated to Odin for about 10 years. And for me, during that period of time, it was really important to kind of get beyond the surface that a lot of people have with him that sort of, not that he's ever straightforward, but that sort of straightforward, popular Odin. And, you know, and he has something like 200, I think it's a little over 200, they're called Haiti or, or by names. And all of them have these sort of layers to meaning to them. And I think when you start to dig into those, you can just learn so much more about who he is, who he was, what he does. I had no idea. 200. Good Lord. It's a little ridiculous. And they're all over the place. Well, he doesn't just cover the Germanic world. He goes into Scandinavia, old German manuscripts, England, even in Ireland a bit to some degree with the migration period, correct? The uh, city of Dublin was actually founded by the Norse. There are sacred sites there. There's one in particular that was dedicated to Thor. But we see some Norse influence kind of in there because of that. Odin was definitely up in the middle of everything, as usual. <laughs> Whenever he's around. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's definitely one of those deities that kind of gets into everything. Well, to say that he's driven is kind of an understatement. He's preparing for Ragnarok. So there's this impetus behind his movement and his seeking. To be fair, that is a really good motivation, literally trying to stave off the end of the, I shouldn't say the end, but the, the twilight of the gods, the doom of the gods. And sort of we see a lot of his stories based around things that he's doing for that. Um, and even in the modern world, a lot of people feel that people who have more modern experiences and encounters with him or feel that, you know, he's calling them in any way, that that's still connected to this this sort of wider motivation he has. What do you think of his depiction in American Gods, the book and the series? I really liked the book. I thought it was really interesting. I liked what I've seen of the series. I admit I haven't seen the whole thing. 
I think the premise of that sort of modern aspects of the gods, the way that the gods are continuing to be present in the modern world, but also how they're sort of shaped and affected by human belief and the evolution of human culture. I think that's a really fascinating concept. And of course, it comes to us from fiction with with Neil Gaiman. But I think that is something that would probably be a good thing for people to consider on a a sort of a bigger scale of how this all interacts. But yeah, I, I liked him on the show. I liked him in the book, Mr. Wednesday. Your book on Odin is through the Pagan Portal series. It's published by Moon Publishing. They have a new series coming out on the Pantheon series. And right now, I believe Egypt is available. But you just submitted a manuscript for one on the Norse Pantheon. It's a new series that they're doing through Moon Books, Pantheons, and then it would be whatever the subject is. So there's like Pantheons, Egypt. And the one that I have just finished is called Pantheon the Norse. And it's sort of half of the book is looking at the history and beliefs and then modern beliefs and practices of people who are um, heathen uh, or also true. And the second half is pretty much divided, in, in my case, in my book, not, I can't speak for the Egyptian book here, divided between a list of the different gods and sort of a summary of who they are and sort of what we know about them from the mythology. And then I do also include a section for like the Alfar, Dvergar, um, Jotun's uh, ancestors, kind of all the other sort of major spirit beings that are also important in heathen belief. It's not just the gods. Fair enough, because even within heathen beliefs, gods is kind of a generic term. And they're not referred to necessarily as gods in their own language, are they? They're divided up into these these other entity tribes, more or less. Yeah, yeah we have the um, Aesir, um, the Vanir. Um, the Jotuns are such a complicated topic because you you sort of have the ones who are more uh, sort of helpful to the Aesir, and then the ones who end up being included among the Aesir, like um, Skathi is a good example of that. She's definitely, you know, comes from, from Jotunheim and is, you know, is, is from there, from that background, but ends up as one of the Aesir, is counted among them, at least by Snorri. You know, there's, there's so many kind of layers of things that we see, which is fascinating to me anyway, that it's not just this simple cut and dry, you know, you have this group here and that group there. There's these sort of interesting connections between them. Even the Jotuns as a whole, it seems like it's as nebulous to define as the modern definition of a troll. Yes, Yes. Um, and I was, I was recently um, talking with my friend, Catherine Heath, and um, she had pointed out some of the newer scholarship where um, certain academics are moving away from using the English translation of giants for them because they find it to be a little misleading and are instead kind of shifting into just using the term Jotun and not translating it. Because it sort of is its own concept. It's like the Aesir. We can translate that as God, but that comes with so many assumptions and sort of presupposes a lot of things, particularly for us, you know, here in Western culture. 
And it's the same thing with the Jotuns. When, when we use the word giant, we have very particular ideas of what that means because it's just so ingrained, you know, in English speaking culture. When actually most likely what they originally were during the, the Norse pagan period was something kind of different from that, you know, not necessarily physically gigantic, but just this sort of third group of, of powerful beings. You know, so you'd have the Aesir and the Vanir and the, the Jotnar, and they were all kind of primordial in different ways and powerful and, and influential and interconnected in different ways. It's probably a good idea to sort of move away from using the word giant because it, it forces you to think a little more about what they are, kind of takes you out of that place where you're making assumptions. Calling them giants seems rather reductive. It takes away a lot of the definition of who they are as an entity. And like you said, it makes you think just, oh, they're big, tall individuals when that's not necessarily the case. It sort of reduces them to this this caricature, tall and, and physically big and not very smart, probably not very attractive and you know, sort of mean, because that's, that's generally the impression that we have of what that word would mean. And it's actually just so much more nuanced and complicated. And you definitely have the giants who are just destructive and, and forces of entropy and trying to bring about Ragnarok effectively. I, I would definitely not be on, on Team Surtur, personally. Not a fan of the fire giants. Um, fire Jotuns, I should say. But, you know, then you have the ones like uh, Freyr's wife, Frey's wife, or, you know, some of Odin's mistresses. Speaking of Odin again, it always comes back to Odin somehow. Or Skahi, uh, for another example. And it's it's just so much more complex than simply, you know, big, dumb, bad guys kind of trying to wreck everything. And I think when we kind of take it out of that assumption and, and back into what the original language was sort of going for, we can appreciate the nuance a little more, hopefully. And even in the stories, if there's one thing the Norse are, are fond of, it's epitaphs for individuals. I don't recall any of the Jotun actually being described as being giant or monstrous in any way. Violent, for sure, but never abnormally sized. Nope, I think the closest you would get, which is sort of you would have to kind of take a step to the, the left, so to speak, is if we're looking at um, Loki's children with Angerboha because um, the world serpent, Jormungandr, you could probably argue was large, excessively sized. Fair enough. Not that we have any really good descriptions, you know, of him in the mythology either, but the implication is that he was fairly large. But yeah, the, the majority of the rest of them, you certainly see ones that have epithets or descriptions of, you know, what would in English kind of be like monstrous or destructive, but not so much literally, you know, gigantic. Even Utgard Loki, if you look at that story where Thor and, and Loki and companions end up um, in his glove overnight, it's it's kind of really implied that that didn't necessarily happen that way, that they were being tricked or deceived with magic, as opposed to literally that he was so gigantic that his glove was the size of a house. <laughs> you know, the other events that happen in that story 
also involve this sort of like deceptive illusions and trickery. Thor trying to drink the ocean, for example. Oh, right. Yes. I love that story. Or uh, Loki trying to eat more than fire. I think one of my favorite stories with the the two companions, brothers, it's kind of nebulous how they are related to each other, is Thor's wedding. One, he's trying to recover his hammer. Yeah, that is one of my all-time favorite stories. Because just picturing it, picturing him all angry, but in the bridal gear and the veil, and just barely being able to contain himself and, and poor Loki with him trying desperately to be like, no, no, it's fine. Her eyes are just really red because she's tired. She hasn't slept from excitement. And then you have the Jotun to the side who's all excited. He's like, this is great. My bride is amazing. <laughs> this is going to be awesome. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that is such a great story. Does not end well for the giant, of course, but. Well, when Thor's involved, it never really does. <laughs> That's true. Very rarely. Transitioning on from the Norse Pantheon book, we're going to actually go into a subject that is more timely than I care it to be, especially locally for us here in West Virginia. And that is the adoption and use of heathen, specifically Scandinavian symbols for white supremacy and different hate groups. I'm not going to name the group. I don't want to give them any publicity. But locally, specifically in my town, a group came through and their letterhead uses a, I guess it would be a stylized iron cross, but it looks enough like a solar cross that I took my solar cross symbol down from my porch and put it into storage for a time because I don't personally want to be associated with that. And for me, that is a difficult thing to not be able to display symbols of my belief because of a hate group that is adopting them. Mm-hmm. And I guess the the question I have is, what recommendations do you have for helping to combat that and educate people on the true meaning behind some of these symbols? Yeah, and that's, that's such a tough situation and such a tough subject. And it's been an issue in heathenry for a long time, having to deal with with these sorts of things. I think, honestly, the best thing that we can do is just keep trying to put good information out there and keep trying when things happen to sort of speak up and make a point of saying, you know, these people are perverting the use of these symbols that they were never originally intended to be symbols of hate or exclusion or premacy or racism or any of that. They're taking things that other people use for spiritual purposes or for, you know, genuine religious reasons, just genuine purposes, and they're twisting them in a way that uh, is, is really harmful to a lot of people. And to me, it's, it's very sad that to be a heathen in the United States these days, you have to be aware that if you're wearing runes or if you have runic tattoos, you know, people will jump to conclusions and assume that you have particular ideologies that you won't have. The The Southern Poverty Law Center, which is a wonderful thing, they have a, a list of hate symbols, basically. And quite a lot of Norse heathen symbols are on that list because they're they're so widespread in their use by these groups. And I, I see a lot of heathens just sort of in this agonizing position of, do you 
give up your own spiritual symbol that's been a symbol that's been associated with your spirituality and religion in some cases for a millennia because it's been co-opted in this way? Or do you, do you keep trying to use it, keep fighting to use it, even though you know that it's going to cause you problems now because of this? And it's just, it's just a mess. It's what it is. But I, I think all we can really do is just keep pushing forward and keep fighting to educate people that these are not symbols of hate. These are not symbols that were intended for that or have that meaning. They're symbols that have been taken and kind of skewed. I don't know, ultimately, if there's certain symbols we might have to eventually sort of concede we can't use anymore. I'm, I'm definitely concerned about that. It's obviously already happened once with a symbol that I'm not going to say the name of because everyone will know what it is, but from World War II, the symbol everyone associates with Germany in World War II, which was not originally a symbol of hate. It was something that they took and used, but it became so ingrained in society associated with that, that you really, you can't use that in Western culture anymore. It's just, it's too strongly connected yeah. to that. And I, I would hate to see that happen with some of the other older heathen symbols. One specifically that, that pops into mind that I'm most immediately concerned about is one that doesn't necessarily have a set definition, and that's the, the Valnut. Mm-hmm. It's generally associated with Odin, but we only have, I believe, two depictions historically of this symbol. And while Odin is depicted in one of them, there's also Valkyries depicted. There's also slain warriors. It could be a symbol for the process of the Valkyries choosing the slain, but we don't know necessarily if it's associated with Odin. Yeah. But at the same time, it's becoming a very problematic symbol. Yeah, which, again, to me, so much of this is just very sad. When I originally got to Heathenry, which was around 2006, the, the Valknut did not, at that point, have those negative associations. It was seen in Heathenry very strongly as Odin's symbol, which, as you mentioned, perhaps not the most historically arguable point, but it had sort of come to be considered his symbol and people who had a, a particular dedication to him would get that as a tattoo. And then at some point in the last uh, however many years, it's, it's kind of been taken in. I think as we have seen more heathens in the U.S. kind of shifting into that white supremacy worldview, took that symbol with them. Mm. And now it is something that I have seen listed and, and discussed as something to watch out for as a symbol of, of this level of racism, basically, white supremacy, kind of like the, the winged odal or the, the hooked othala rune. Oh, yes. Which is the one for everyone who is not familiar with it. It's the one that looks like a diamond where the bottom part of the diamond extends almost like it's it's forming half of another diamond, but then it goes up and out on the bottom. So it looks like it has little feet. I always describe it as like one of those uh, commemoration ribbons that you would see people wear for like supporting the troops. Oh, yeah. But then stylized with feet. Yeah. Yeah. It's, that's actually a variation on the, as far as I'm aware, it's a variation on the older form of the rune, which doesn't have the little feet. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. that one, I mean, that's become so ubiquitous with some of these, these hate groups that 
I don't know that we could ever really successfully pull that one back. I mean, they, they have it on flags and all kinds of stuff that they'll wave around. And I would hate to see the Valknut go the same way. I've seen a lot of people now who get very nervous with Thor's hammers. Oh, yes. Yep. After the, um, the insurrection on uh, January 6th at the Capitol building, because one of the people who was all over the news had a lot of tattoos, and one of them was a fairly large Thor's hammer uh, on the gentleman's chest, I've seen a lot of people, my friends who are heathen, who um, actually stopped wearing their hammer or were nervous about wearing it because they didn't want to be associated with those particular things. And that's just sad. I mean, that's a symbol that we we do know for certain was used over a thousand years ago um, and during the conversion period in Iceland to represent people who didn't want to convert, people who were still staying heathen. So to see something like that being added to this list of symbols that we have to be careful about or we, you know, we can't wear. Eventually we're going to lose everything if we don't start pushing back. True. And in this instance with Thor's hammer, I think our biggest ally, as odd as this would sound, may actually be Disney. Yeah. And and it's strange to think, but that is a, you know, it's a moneymaker for them with the Marvel Comics character even though it's not really a good representation of Thor as a deity, it's still his hammer is symbolic and they will go to the ends of the earth to defend it. I guarantee that. And smart people don't mess with Disney. No, no, they do not. No. Yeah, no, that's, that's true. And, you know, hopefully it won't go that way, but I, I definitely think that we, we have to be good about drawing a line in the sand and I will say that I'm really pleased that we seem to be doing a much better job of that. Like I said, I, I got into heathenry, you know, about 15 years ago. And 15 years ago, we did not have as much of an overt problem with white supremacy. I won't say we didn't have a problem, because we did, mm -hmm. but not to the overt degree that it is today. But there was also a lot more of an attitude of tolerance towards it. This idea that we should try to respect people's differences in opinion, you know, even if that different opinion involved white supremacy. And, you know, this it's just a sort of don't want to rock the boat attitude. And when negative events occurred associated with Norse symbols, people would kind of be quick to sort of personally distance a bit from it. But you didn't see these broad sweeping statements as much trying to make it very clear that the majority of heathens in the United States aren't like that, that that's not something that is, you know, the status quo, as it were. And I've been really, really pleased, not that it was a, a good thing that's happened this year, but really pleased with the response to it and the way people have been very clear that, you know, our symbols are not symbols of hate. Um, runes are not symbols of hate. And these are things that are being taken from heathen spirituality and misused, not things that have those meanings layered into them, which is good. We just got to keep saying that forever <laughs> and loud. I was actually thinking of something along these lines the other day. It's kind of a double-edged sword in that paganism doesn't have a centralized authority figure, 
but that's also a weakness because we don't say have a pope who can speak up against any of this that's going on as a unified singular voice. We all just sort of have to say it at the same time loudly. That definitely can be something that helps us and hurts us in a lot of situations. And that's uh, one thing I think with this, not that, again, there's no universal pagan pope running around out there, thankfully, because that would be really disturbing. But usually when things like this have happened in the past, because they have, the heathens who do get vocal about it are very clear, like, this isn't part of my heathenry. And that's kind of where it stops. This last time, part of why I think we're making some progress is I saw a lot of people who weren't heathen or um, who don't, you know, worship the Norse gods in any sense, who were also supportive and also sharing messages about this is not what heathenry is. You know, it's it's kind of been like the the not subtle joke for a long time that most heathens probably are, you know, at least not against that mindset. So when stuff would happen, like nobody would really jump in to defend American heathenry, except for some American heathens. This time I have seen a lot more people from different branches of paganism speaking up or sharing educational information saying that, no, this is not this is not what heathenry in the U.S. is about. And that's an interesting change, too, in the past few years, especially how there's more allyship between different pagan belief systems and how they're helping to really speak up for each other. Yeah, and I think that's really critical, particularly as we're moving forward and things like this are happening, not just to heathenry. You know, every branch of paganism has its its horrible moment of public nonsense that goes on. But, you know, again, and I've mentioned a couple times now how long I've been heathenry, but I've been practicing witchcraft and part of the wider pagan community since the early 90s. And there's always been this sort of trend of you, you kind of take care of your own, but you don't get into other people's stuff. So, you know, if something happened with, you know, say witches in the late 90s, other types of pagans, people who didn't consider themselves affiliated with whatever that group was, would usually just stand back, um, sometimes with popcorn or another snackable item. <laughs> I mean, let's be honest, it, that, that is how it usually would go down. And it, it does seem like we've got a, a much bigger sense recently that we're all in this together, even if we have very different spirituality and very different beliefs. We're all minorities within a minority in a country that's not particularly friendly to spiritual minorities. True, true. But we're also getting to see, I'd say, a social evolution where it's not necessarily more accepted, but it is better represented and represented by the practitioners themselves more than the media or outside sources like an anthropologist commenting on it. We've, we've definitely gotten a lot more mainstream than we used to be. <laughs> which is another of those double-edged swords, but it definitely does kind of put you in a different place where you're more likely to get, I think, sometimes negative attention than you would have 20 years ago when you're wearing a Thor's hammer, you're wearing a, a Valknut, you're wearing a room. People just aren't going to know what it is. Now they might know what it is, and that could be a good thing, could be a bad thing. Yeah, definitely. I remember around about 20 years ago, 
trying to find a Thor's hammer pendant was sometimes difficult. And at that time, where I live, it was a very small town. There was one head shop that had a single style available. And unfortunately, it was the Icelandic one with the the wolf's head that looked like an upside down crucifix. So not necessarily the one that you want to wear in public. No, which is actually ironic because that is a historical replica, as I'm sure you know, of what they actually were wearing a thousand years ago in Iceland. Because, And this is another of my favorite all-time stories. Because the, the smiths that were making the hammer pendants were also making the cross pendants for the Christians, the people who had converted to Christianity. And they were too cheap to have two different molds. So they would just make the one. And then where they stuck the bail depended on whether it was going to be a cross or a Thor's hammer, which I don't know why that amuses me to no end. Uh, I've seen that same mold in historic accounts. I, I love that. I mean... How better is that really to show the transition? In a tumultuous time, it was sort of accepted to some degree. It was still sort of tenuous, I'm sure, on a on a personal level. But like you said, the smith is making the same pendant. It just depends on how it hangs. Very entrepreneurial of them to be like, well, if you want a cross, we got those. If you want a Thor's hammer, give me a second to restring it. Here you go. <laughs> And I think most of those, or at least a lot of them, were soft metals. So I don't, I just imagine him having a whole bunch of them in bulk. And he's like, okay, where do you want me to put the hole to put the string? You know, it's industry at its best, really. But, you know, again, ironically, that's why nowadays people mistake them for upside down crosses, because that kind of is what they are, but not what they're supposed to look like. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to get, if I start talking about the history of Iceland during the conversion period, we're not going to talk about anything else and I'll bore everyone to tears. So we'll, we'll move on. Honestly, I find that personally interesting. So if you wanted to steer in that direction, go for it. I feel like we've kind of reached the limit of what we can say about uh, white supremacy and the adoption of symbols. It's just speak up, be loud, make sure you're heard and you represent everybody properly when you do so. I mean, the, the sad truth is, particularly in the last four years, white supremacy has become something that is much more on the surface in public than it used to be. And I don't know if that's a good thing, because now we are more aware of it and we can confront it and deal with it, or if it's a bad thing, because it seems like it's everywhere now. But we, we definitely have to make sure we're speaking up about it. I've seen it obviously in heathenry, you know, sadly, every book I've written on this subject, my, the Pagan Portal Thor and the Pagan Portals Odin and the Norse book that's coming out, uh, I always have to include at least a few paragraphs to kind of let people know this, this is an issue that we face in modern heathenry and you need to be aware of it. And you need to be aware that you're, you're going to have to deal with this. You, there's kind of no way to avoid it. But this is something I've also seen coming up in Irish paganism and Celtic paganism, which are other subjects, of course, that I am invested in and write about. I've seen it coming up in fairy lore, people that are interested in that, even to the point where on the academic Twitter, they had a whole hashtag about fight fascism, which a lot of it was more aimed at, at white supremacy kind of creeping in. It's kind of become this huge problem that's everywhere. And I think we all need to be careful not to get in the mindset that, oh, that's not an issue that my spirituality has, because it, it 
probably is, whether you've run into it yet or not, be prepared and don't hesitate to speak up. I've not seen anything about the the Irish side of uh, of white supremacy and and how they're adopting the paganism from that direction. What should we look out for? There's a couple layers to what's been going on. Some of it is that for whatever reason, um, and I actually don't know how this exactly got started, but for whatever reason, four or five years ago or so, um, a lot of more Norse-oriented pagans, heathens, Astuar, assorted labels in that direction, started coming into Celtic groups on social media and sort of with the idea of claiming that Celtic ancestry and Norse ancestry were the same thing or very similar and that they wanted to sort of respect or incorporate it. But what was actually going on was more of a um, membership drive, if you will, where they would come into the Celtic groups, but then they would start um, with a lot of the dog whistles that you find with white supremacy. And from there, it had kind of grown into people coming in who were not necessarily Norse affiliated, who were just claiming at least to be Celtic pagans, but with the same sort of mentality of this is only for people of a certain ancestry, which actually means people of a certain skin tone, because there's plenty of people in the Norse countries and Germanic countries as well, but in the Celtic language countries that are not necessarily, you know, what we would label white. There's a lot of diversity out there. It's just a reality. And the more we started to see that, the more it became clear that this was a real growing problem that had to be addressed. Unfortunately, again, a lot of what, would, what I would see, at least in a lot of the Celtic groups, is what I was seeing in the Norse groups 15 years ago, which is the attitude of, well, if we just kind of ignore it, like we don't agree with it, but we'll just kind of ignore it and it'll go away because that's not what we're about. That is not how that works. If you don't confront it and make it clear that that's not acceptable, it does tend to take root. You have to constantly be on guard and constantly make it clear that that is not what your spirituality is about. It's a sickness. You can't, you can't ignore it and hope it goes away. Sometimes you have to treat what's going on. There's no other way to put it, really. No, Definitely. And that's kind of why I emphasize that we have to we have to be willing to clear that this is not part of who we are, not part of what our spirituality is about, you know, which isn't to say you can't be proud of your ancestors. You can be. You can be proud of, you know, whatever ancestry you have, whatever your connection to a place is. That's perfectly fine. But as soon as you start to imply that it's necessary for everyone to have that, or to imply that you have to have a certain ancestry and a particular skin tone, which a lot of times is what it comes down to, or you're not really part of that spirituality, then we have a really big problem. And you know, you just have to immediately make it clear that no, that's not a prerequisite. And if you break it down to its base parts, you can be proud of your ancestor but when you're proud of your ancestor's skin tone, that's where it becomes ludicrous. And, you know, as soon as you start gatekeeping based on skin color, you, you basically are into white supremacy. You know, there's, there's really no way to argue yourself out of that. No, not really.
Right. I I can have a certain skin tone and my cousin who has, you know, a 50% DNA connection to me or however you want to look at it, could have a completely different skin tone, but we still share a significant number of ancestors. Obviously, skin color is not a real deciding factor in that. And particularly in the United States, where a lot of people, when they're talking about ancestral connections, whether it's Celtic or Norse, not always, but a lot of times they're talking about multiple generations back. If, if you're going three, four, five generations back and picking on a, one or two ancestors to focus on, that's fine. But you have a lot of other ancestors going on too, not just the ones that you, you are focusing on because you, you find that interesting. You know, you can pick four or five generations back and have some really interesting variety going on no matter what your current appearance is. That's one of the trends in paganism that's kind of driving me nuts right now with the introduction of uh, DNA testing. Mm -hmm. People will get that done and find out they have 0.03% Scandinavian DNA. So, oh, suddenly they're Vikings. Yeah. And, you know, I, I can appreciate people, especially when you feel like you don't have a strong connection to any sort of ancestry you get a DNA test done and it's exciting and, and you feel like you're connected, you're part of something. But, you know, and this is something I, I've said repeatedly in different forums. Ancestry is not culture. DNA is not culture. Culture is something that's living and alive and requires some effort to connect to. If you have that 3% Scandinavian ancestry going on, that's great. But if you just get on a plane and fly over to Sweden or Norway or Finland or wherever, you can't, you're not going to be able to speak the language when you get off the plane. You know, you're not going to be familiar with the food. You're not going to be familiar with pretty much anything. You have to learn all of that. You might feel a connection to it for whatever reason, but it doesn't change the fact that you're not part of the culture until you've made that effort and made that connection to it. I get a lot of hate on social media sometimes for saying that, but it's true. No, I completely agree. I think one of the, this is kind of a small segue, uh, one of the most intriguing parts of modern Scandinavian culture is the sheer quantity of coffee that they drink. So I think I would fit right in there. I, I have to admit, so I was in Iceland um, in 2018, and we went into this little bakery, and I took one look at, like, the board for coffee, and I didn't even know what to do. I was like, I, there is so much going on right here, <laughs> and I don't understand, and not because the language thing, but I'm like, I don't, I don't even understand what most of this is. And I thought I was, like, a coffee person, but no, no, put me to shame. Oh, that makes me want to go to Iceland even more. You would love Iceland. Everyone would love Iceland because Iceland is amazing. It'll try to kill you, like, repeatedly. Oh, for sure. <laughs> it's a wonderful place. It seems like one of those locations where you don't deviate from the path. Like, you'll just disappear. Yeah, that's that's actually, when we were there on our trip, that was one of the things that we, we had to, like, remind people. And, you know, I had to remind myself because I am really good about climbing over protective railings because in the U.S., <laughs> a lot of times protective railings are sort of based on the absolute worst case, never going to happen scenario. You know, so if you climb over the railing, it's okay. You know, you've still got like 30 feet before anything actually dangerous might happen. 
Please, by the way, everyone listening to this, do not be me. I am a terrible example to follow in life. But, you know, this is just how I live in the U.S. I, I do things all the time that I probably shouldn't do involving safety barriers. In Iceland, they're not playing. <laughs> like When they say, like, don't do the thing, you don't do the thing because it, it will kill you. And their their protective barriers are like two feet away from the death zone. Oh, wow. When we went, oh yeah, we went to Geyser, which is one of the big geysers. You know, you're walking on the path to go up to the geyser, which is super cool, by the way. I highly recommend if you're in Iceland in that area, go see it. And there's this little tiny, I'm not even exaggerating, it's like 18 inches off the ground, little, you know, metal fence kind of, the, um, it's sort of like a metal post and then a chain to the next post. But it's like a foot and a half off the ground. I'm like, oh, okay. Trying to keep people maybe from getting their shoes wet. I don't know, because there's water just on the other side of it. No, the water on the other side of it was like 300 something degrees. And they, so there's this tiny little sign you finally come to that is like, be advised, do not touch the water because it will burn you horribly. And the closest hospital is like 200 kilometers away. And it's like, oh. This is not the splash zone at SeaWorld. No. Do not step over the fence and touch the water because you'll burn the skin off your fingers, basically. Wow. Yeah. They they just assume that you're going to be intelligent and not make bad choices. It's, It's very important in Iceland to not make bad choices. I feel like historically it's always been that way. In Iceland, yeah, I think so. It's just, it's an absolutely gorgeous, gorgeous country. Uh, and I will say up front, like, I, I love Ireland. Ireland is my favorite place in the world, but Iceland is just unbelievable. Even the airport, like, once you get out of the airport and you're waiting to get your ride to wherever you're going, well, we were going to Reykjavik, so in the south, it's just gorgeous. It's a gorgeous country. There's rainbows every five minutes. When you turn around, there's a rainbow. I totally understood after going to Iceland why they have stories of the Bifrost, by the way, the Rainbow Bridge, because you just see them constantly. It's just breathtaking country. You see, I got to see the Northern Lights once while we were there. We went to Gothafoss, which is the, the big waterfall. Supposedly, when they did finally convert to Christianity, the law speaker took his God posts and threw them into the waterfall there. They say that might not be a true story, but I love it anyway. But it's just, it's all just so, so amazing and beautiful and it will all kill you. <laughs> when, when we went to Gothafoss, you can walk right down to the edge of the river and that is a no joke river. Like if you fall in that river, that'll be the end. No one is saving you. You will just be gone. Oh my. Yeah. But it's, it's worth it. Go there and, and enjoy it and just listen to the signs. Well, before we finish up here, what projects are you working on right now? I'm always up to something or multiple somethings, as you pointed out at the beginning. I did just finish up the Nurse Pantheon's book. I have another book on contract called The Other Worlds, I think. None of my titles are usually final until the book is actually done. And I'm sure that's what's going to make the most sense. But it's, it's basically about the different variations of the other world of fairy in the Celtic language speaking cultures. I'm excited for that one. I think that's going to be a good one. I am always working on fiction. So I think next month I'm going to be starting work on my next novel. So I'm also working on that. Now, this last one may be a loaded question since I didn't prep you for it before. If you had to choose one influential book 
that had the greatest impact on you, what would it be? That's a tough one. I, I'm a gigantic bibliophile and I have a ridiculous amount of books. So it's like asking me to choose my favorite child. That's a tough one. If I had to say fiction, it would probably be Mercedes Lackey's The Last Herald Mage, which I read when I was very young, because that, that kind of opened my eyes to a lot of things that I was not aware were even possible at the time. That was definitely something that was hugely impactful for me. For talking nonfiction, ooh, that's a tough one. I don't know if I could pick just one. I would have to have a list of like, like 20. Fair enough. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's going to bother me now. I'm going to have to think about it. Oh, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, no, it's okay. I just, there's so many good choices. There's so much out there. You, you get into mythology, you could get into folklore, you could get into philosophy, you get into all sorts of things. I've rarely met a book I didn't like. Rarely. It's happened, but not often. Well, like I said, it was a loaded question. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. At least you know I'm giving you an honest answer. Well, it has been a pleasure talking with you, and thanks for stopping by for the interview. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was really fun. Not the lightest of conversations, but definitely worth having. And We kept it light in places. Yeah, yeah. Well, we ended by talking about how awesome Iceland is, so you can't go wrong with that. Absolutely. And sometimes the most important conversations aren't necessarily pleasant. That's true. Um, and this is definitely one of those conversations that needs to be had. Even if this just inspires other people listening to have their own conversations about it, then that's awesome. Morgan can be found on Twitter and Patreon at the handle Morgan Daimler, all one word. Their books are released through Moon Books, links in the show notes below. As always, a huge thank you to my patrons, especially those pledging at the elemental level, such as Samantha Shaver. You too can become one of the show's loyal goblins by pledging as little as $1 per month. Even the smallest donation helps to keep me caffeinated. Thank you to Sarah Rudy and her band Hello June for the use of the song Fight Don't Fight in our intro and outro music. Their work can be found on Bandcamp.com and at WeAreHelloJune.com. Esoteric Book Club can be found on Patreon, Instagram, Facebook, and at EsotericBookClub.org. Until next time, remember, stay weird. Stay weird.